Afrika Zora Afrika amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 11925 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to southern to West Africa as well as 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to southern africa as well as dstv's audio bouquet channel 802 i'm lulu gabu in studio with Anne musa tabisolo hoko and figile lingwati in our top stories on africa rise and shine at the sawa igad leaders meet to discuss south sudan peace proposal and sadak troika meets to discuss political crisis in the drc and lesotho in economics news, wage talks at South Africa's power utility ESCOM to resume next week. And in sports news, Argentina on the brink of shock World Cup exit after Croatia loss. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. The Ministerial Sadek Troika on Politics, Defence and Security called to look at the preparedness of the DRC to hold elections and progress on Lesotho's reform process will get underway in the Angolan capital, Luanda, later this morning. Ministers of Defence in the region are expected to attend the two-day meeting. It was preceded by a gathering of the Defence and Security Chiefs in the SADC region. Ntebo Mukobo has more. Although the SADC region remains one of the most peaceful in the continent, tensions in Lesotho and the DRC are a worrying factor and the SADC organ on politics, defense and security is meeting in Angola to find solutions to crisis in these countries. South Africa's head of joint operations in the DRC, General Panitla Twayo, says so far they are happy with their mediation efforts in both countries. The focus was on those two countries. So we are optimistic that if we work together, we will succeed. Minister Nosivio Mapisa Ngakul and other three ministers that include Lindy Wesisulu, Michael Masut and Malusi Gikaba leading the country's delegation to the Angolan gathering. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has expressed his readiness to support Eritrea and Ethiopia following positive steps of peace between the two neighboring states in the Horn of Africa. Ethiopia this month announced its readiness to accept and implement a 2002 border agreement that ended two years of bloody conflict in which thousands died. In a statement released by a spokesperson, the UN chief welcomed the positive steps taken to resolve outstanding issues regarding the normalization of relations between the two countries. The Libyan Navy has rescued 379 illegal immigrants in two separate operations off the western coastal town of Garabuli. Navy spokesperson Ayob Kasim says the Coast Guards rescued 237 migrants off 11 African nationalities on two rubber boats east of the capital Tripoli. The bodies of three migrants were also recovered. This week, illegal immigration off the western Libyan coast increased. The Libyan Navy rescued 953 illegal immigrants and recovered 20 bodies of immigrants who drowned at sea during multiple rescue operations. 
Italy's right-wing interior minister, Matteo Salvani, has accused rescue charities of treating migrants as human meat. It's his latest attack against the groups operating in the Mediterranean. The Italian government has accused a German rescue vessel of breaking international law during an operation to rescue migrants. Italy has seen more than 700,000 migrants arrive on its shore since 2013. The country accuses fellow EU members of abandoning it. Salvini says the charities are putting migrants' lives at risk. Even putting at risk the lives of those migrants that were on the dinghies, they didn't listen to the Italian authorities. They didn't listen to the Libyan authorities. They intervened in order to load up the precious amount of human beings, of human meat, because they're good. I have my doubts that they are just good, but they do it for their own interests. And finally, South Africans have until the end of August to comment on the draft climate change bill. The bill aims to ensure that South Africa cuts down on greenhouse gas emissions. In terms of the draft bill, provinces will also have to put in place implementation plans. South Africa remains among the biggest per capita polluters of the world. Greenpeace Africa political advisor, Happy Kambule. It is something that has been a long time coming. It's been several years since COP17 when the climate change bill was initially spoken about during 2011. We feel like it is a necessary thing in order to make sure that there is certainty and that at least there is some statutory alignment around the need for coordination and integration from different departments as well as from people or companies that need to provide certain information for us to be able to deal with the climate issue in South Africa. And that's the news. It lands at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, And Leaders of the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, IGAD, met in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, yesterday to discuss the situation in South Sudan. The summit followed a face-to-face between South Sudan President Salva Kiir and his main rival, Rek Machar, on Wednesday. Speaking at the opening of the summit, the Ethiopian Prime Minister threatened to take collective action against the warring parties in South Sudan should they fail to implement peace agreement and cessation of hostility. Koleta Wanjohi has more from Addis Ababa. At the IGAD summit, the heads of state reminded South Sudan leaders that their citizens have suffered for long and they must save them by honoring a ceasefire agreement that they signed. The IGAD chairperson, Abi Ahmed, who is also the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, says the agenda of the regional body is still to restore peace to South Sudan. We all feel the pain and the suffering of our brothers, sisters and children in South Sudan. We all want to see it end. We all have said enough is enough. We all have vowed never again. Now the time for promises over. We need to act and time is not on our side. 
The IGAD chair adds that to achieve peace in South Sudan, each member of the warring parties must exercise high level of compromise. He says the neighboring countries of South Sudan in the IGAD region are tired of the prolonged fighting because they are feeling the spillover effect, especially for those who are hosting refugees. The crisis in South Sudan is not just another crisis in the neighboring country. It has grown to become a crisis in each of our respective countries in the region. Our vital national security interests are at stake. That's why business as usual is over. This IGAD summit happened after a face-to-face meeting between President Salva Kiir and opposition leader Riek Mashar on Wednesday at the invitation of Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. I am grateful we have President Salva Kiir and Dr. Riek Mashar here with us. They are here because they realize what is at stake because they realize time is fast running out and they need to act now. The chair of IGAD, Dr. Abi Ahmed, has threatened tough action against the leaders of South Sudan if they keep delaying peace. We are ready to provide any support to the parties so that they fully implement the, the various peace agreements. However, if South Sudanese authorities and the different parties are unwilling and unable to halt the suffering of their people, we need to put them on notice that we are ready to act. We have the moral as well as the legal responsibility to take action. Right after the face-to-face meeting with President Salva Kiir, Riek Mashar, the opposition leader, criticized the current model of mediation that IGAD is using that involves imposing proposals of governance. He says the warring parties must be allowed to face each other and agree without IGAD's interference. I'm Kuletonjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For feedback and questions relating to our show, tweet us at Channel Africa 1 or at Rise Africa. Email us at info at channelafrica.org or send a WhatsApp message on 277-6300327. Channel Africa, the African perspective. The Congolese government says elections in the DRC will take place as planned on the 23rd of December. This came out at the meeting of the officials of the Sadak Troika on politics, defense and security underway in Angola. The much-anticipated elections in the southern African country have been pushed back on countless occasions due to alleged lack of resources. However, some critics say President Joseph Kabila deliberately wanted to, to prolong his stay in power and rig elections if they take place. But as in Mukobo reports, the Congolese government says it's ready for the December polls. President Joseph Kabila has been in power since 2001 and his second and constitutionally mandated final term ended in December 2016. But since then elections have been postponed due to reports of lack of resources. In the first democratic elections in that country, South Africa carried some calls by printing ballot papers and distributing them across the 26 provinces in the DRC. And if the printing of ballot papers will be done outside the country, their cost to run the forthcoming elections is estimated to be over $1.3 billion, the money the DRC doesn't have. But speaking to the SAPC on the sidelines of the meeting of the SADC Troika on politics, defense and security, 
Congolese diplomat Benny Mpoko says they have cut costs, insisting that the DRC will run its own elections. If we are going to have elections as we had them in the past, where the ballot papers are printed in South Africa and they are transported and distributed throughout the country, it's an enormous task. With the introduction of the voting machine, we can cut down the cost. Therefore, DRC is in position to fund elections on its own without any support from outside in terms of funding. So the elections, yes, will happen on the 23rd of December for the president, for the members of the parliament, as well as the provincial assemblies. All three of them will happen in 23rd of December under this, the current structure which the Independent Commission has put in place. With fears that violence in the north and south Kivu province may threaten or derail the December polls, Ambassador Mpoko says there is relative peace in almost the entire country, except for some localities in the two provinces. DRC has 26 provinces, as you know. We have security challenges in two provinces out of 26, North Kivu, South Kivu. Those challenges are not spread all over the provinces, in some localities. And our army is at work as we speak. And uh, we are very confident that comes December, those two provinces will be stable. The meeting of the defense officials also dealt with the Lesotho crisis. President Cyril Ramaphosa, who was the SADC facilitator in Lesotho, has now appointed retired Deputy Chief Justice Dekhamo Seneke as the new facilitator. But speculation has arrived that some countries in the region want to see South Africa out of the mediation role in the Mountain Kingdom, something that the Lesotho government says is not aware of. Tabang Lekele is from the Lesotho government. Certainly, yes. Lesotho is very happy with the role that His Excellency, the President of South Africa, is playing as a facilitator in Lesotho. And indeed, we have been informed that the President has appointed a high-profile person who will indeed be assisting him in that uh, facilitation work. And I think the formal announcement of who that person is will be made by the relevant authorities. I think the current support that we are getting from SADC would like to see that continue in order to make sure that indeed Lesotho is assisted in the reform program in terms of deepening of democracy and entrenching peace and stability in the country. Meanwhile, South Africa, which is heavily involved in Lesotho and the DRC, says it is happy with all its mediation efforts in both countries. The head of the joint operation in the DRC, General Panisha Joyo, elaborates. We're looking at DRC and Lesotho, which in a nutshell, it is the general security situation in the region. The focus was on those two countries. So we are optimistic that if we work together, we will succeed. Defence officials will brief their ministers later this morning with Minister Nosif Uemapisa Ngakula and other three ministers that include Lindy Wesisulu, Michael Masuta and Malusi Gikaba also attending the Angolan gathering. I am Tebu Mokobi in the Angolan capital, Luanda. Going back in time to today in 1971, banned PAC leader Robert Sobukwe is refused an exit permit to leave South Africa for his studies in the United States. The Minister of Justice, Jimmy Kruger, refused to lift his banning order, which confined him to the magisterial district of Kimberley. Today in history, 1971.
South Africa's Health Minister Erin Mutsualedi has announced two bills, the National Health Insurance Bill and the Medical Schemes Amendment Bill in Pretoria yesterday. The bills will complement each other in ensuring universal health coverage. The aim of these bills is to ensure universal access to health care by all South Africans. Also, these bills will also repeal over 200 health legislation which are inconsistent with the constitution. Maluti Obusing reports. The year 2018 to 2022 is the second phase of the implementation of national health insurance. Motswa Lady, accompanied by officials from his department, including health ombudsman Professor Malekha Puruma Koba, says the need for Im- says the need for universal access to primary health care influenced implementation of national health insurance. He says that every citizen needs access to quality health care in order to reach their full potential and that to achieve this, fair and equitable financing of health care is inevitable. As it is now generally accepted, the cost of private health care is out of reach of many citizens, even the well-to-do ones. The presentation of the World Health Organization, as well as the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, stated that contrary to belief, only 10% of South Africa's population can afford what is being charged in private health care. Hence, the amendments we are introducing today are meant to provide much-needed relief to patients finding themselves in serious financial hardships. Motualidi says the NHS aimed at strengthening services to healthcare consumers while keeping costs reasonable. He also announced the abolishment of brokers within the medical schemes environment. So the first amendment is to abolish what has come to be known as core payments. Core payments means that the scheme pays a portion of the bill that the provider, either a private hospital or a doctor, charges to a patient. Now, because they pay a portion of the bill, the rest of the money is supposed to be paid by the patient from their own pocket. Now, this amendment means that every cent charged to the patient must be settled fully by the medical scheme. Motoradi believes patients shouldn't be burdened with settling medical bills, while medical schemes are holding close to 60 billion rent in reserves and are also generating more profits. Medical schemes are mutual benefits funds for patients. They are not supposed to make profits. But we know huge amounts of money are put in reserve when patients are required to pay more. We believe these huge reserves were accumulated partly through high premiums. So we believe that money went on for accumulation of reserves. But it's also the issue of core payments, which I'm saying we're abolishing. Because from the records we have in the last financial year, people pay core payments from their pockets to the tune of at least, if I'm not mistaken, 29 billion rand. The minister also says people won't be allowed to go directly to a specialist first, as it's currently the case in the private sector. They have to consult a general practitioner first, whom then refer them to a specialist such as gynecologist or pediatrician. He also announced that the public will soon know reasons behind high cost of medical care. The only argument that persists is what are the reasons for these high costs. And because of this uh, persisting argument, former Chief Justice Sandy Lengo has been appointed by the Competition Commission to conduct a public market inquiry into the cost of health care. He has been on it for more than three years now.
and we are aware that he intends to release the provisional findings and recommendations for public comment on the 28th of this very month. Unfortunately, we do hear rumors that certain vested interest groups are trying to block the release of the findings. I can only assume that they do not want the public to know the real truth. The NHS should be fully implemented and operational by 2026. I'm Malut Ubuseng, Pretoria. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Broadcasting from an African perspective. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The announcement of the National Health Insurance NHI Bill and the Medical Schemes Amendment Bill by South Africa's Health Minister Aaron Mutsualedi has been received with mixed reaction. Although the idea behind these bills is to pave way for universal health coverage in the country through NHI, it remains yet to be clear on how exactly it will work. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by Chief Economist at Efficient Group, Davi Ruit. Davi, thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning to you, Lulu. Thank you. Now, firstly, what do you make of the Minister's announcement? Well, not much of a surprise there. Pretty much this was already in the market. And we've expected that there's nothing really much new to the announcement of the minister. Maybe one or two things that are perhaps a little bit on the new side. One is that they're going to try to get rid of brokers. So your financial advisor advising you what, what medical fund to buy, for example, will in future not be able to do that. That's one important announcement. And the other important announcement is that co-payments will gradually be phased out or will be phased out pretty soon as well. But for the rest, it's pretty much as expected and much of that uh, has been known previously. Mm. Now, Davi, let's speak about the pilots that uh, took place in the Limbobo province. How did, they, how did they fare? A lot of analysts have come out and said that they, they failed dismally. What's your take on these? Uh, well, I just don't know. Uh, the, minister, the minister didn't actually elaborate on that. He was asked, I know there were a couple of journalists asking, him about these pilot projects, and the minister simply did not answer those questions as far as I know. So I don't know how, how these the different pilot projects, how, how successful it was. Uh, but yes, I've heard the rumors that there were a number of issues about these pilot projects, and I must tell you, I am very concerned about South Africa's health services going forward. I do not think, and there was a target they set that the NHI will be implemented eventually in 2026, I think it is. Uh, and I, can, I am pretty sure that is not going to happen. The reality is that we have a, a, a government medical system in South Africa, medical health system in South Africa, that is pathetically run, and it's hugely ineffective, and there's a lot of corruption. So I'm afraid 
given the efficiency of the state, I am I will be really really surprised if that time limit is actually uh, adhered to. Do you see the NHI working in the country as an economist? No. no, certainly not. Let's just understand what is going to happen here. We've got two medical systems essentially in South Africa. We've got a private medical industry in South Africa that's certainly not perfect, but the, the quality of medical services that's provided to the private sector, and a rather few of them, that is absolutely correct, is really of, of world standard. But it's absolutely not perfect. I admit that and I agree with that. Then we have a public medical system in South Africa that is a total disaster. Uh, in fact, some analysts are actually saying that the, pa- the public medical industry in South Africa has correct, uh, collapsed. Uh, if you look at how much money we are spending on medical services, the state in South Africa, then we spend most and most other countries in the world. But the quality is really uh, certainly not what we in South Africa should be getting. So the NHI essentially suggest that in future we're going to put these two systems together and the state will be in charge of this new super medical fund, if you like. Now, given the track record of the state, I cannot see how they, the, the current uh, personnel uh, that are obviously not competent in running the current system, how they will all of a sudden become competent and efficient in running a bigger system. So I'm afraid this is probably going to lead to the collapse of the whole medical system in South Africa if it is going to be put under the control of the current personnel that is responsible for the public health system. Now, Davi, let's just uh, take a step back where yeah. we've seen over a number of years in terms of um, the the staffing or the staff complement, whether in the private sector or in the public space. For instance, nurses. South African uh, uh, qualified and and practice nurses are a hot commodity in other parts of the world. Doctors as well. Why are we dealing with a situation where the health system is seemingly not the greatest, but with very good um, nurses and doctors uh, with yeah. good qualifications and they are sought, sought after, for instance, in the United Kingdom or in, uh, in Saudi Arabia or in Dubai. Yeah. Why yeah. are we failing at home to ensure that uh, the staff complement um, we have, let me say, among the best and we're not able to utilize them here at home? What's the yeah, problem? Absolutely. What is going yeah. on? You are putting your finger right on it, absolutely. You, you are absolutely right. Our medical personnel that we train in South Africa are very, very good. They are very much sought after all over the globe. People, other countries in the world are poaching our medical people that are trained in South Africa. So why are they leaving? And the reason why they are leaving, a very important reason, is because the conditions under which they have to work in South Africa are quite dismal quite often. Speak to uh, doctors or nurses that work in the public hospitals, for example, and they will tell you exactly what I mean. So, and that is actually the issue. So it's not the medical personnel. It's the management of the, the public health sector that leaves much to be desired. So what we need to do, and I've got a couple of suggestions how we can fix this, but this is a managerial problem and certainly not to do with the quality of South Africa's medical personnel. What would be an ideal mechanism to address the country's health challenges where all stakeholders are happy? Well, nobody's going to be happy. Now, let's accept that. And let's also accept that South Africa is a poor country and South Africa is not going to provide the sort of medical services that you can get in wealthy countries like, for example, Switzerland. Let's just accept that that is a reality, certainly not soon. 
So what is a better solution? The reality is that the, the states misspend the money that we, the taxpayers, give to the state to provide public health services. That is a fact. Secondly, we have a, a, a relatively good public or rather private health sector in South Africa. Isn't there some sort of way where we can, make, uh, uh, instead of uh, putting everything uh, under control of uh, politicians, isn't there some sort of way where we can actually convert the public health sector into a private health sector to get the benefits uh, that the private sector is currently uh, getting from their health sector? And I think there certainly is. What we can do, for example, is simply convert the Department of Health into a couple of huge uh, medical funds and give everybody, all South Africans, the opportunity to decide which one of those medical funds they would like to belong to. And the state then will pay your contribution to this medical fund. The second step will be to get all the, the, the state medical institutions like hospitals and clinics and the like to, to simply claim from this medical fund like any private medical uh, fund claims would have happened and eventually privatize these hospitals and clinics. And the result of that will be that the normal poor people in South Africa that are dependent on the state for medical services will all of a sudden have access to private medical services that are far superior from the services that are getting currently. Of course... Uh, sorry, I have to cut you there. I'm told that we have run out of time, but I would like us okay. to take this further at another time. Um, and oh. just, uh, you know, as the story develops, as the NHI bill has uh, been announced and so on. So um, let's shelve it for now. We will take it up at another time. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Chief Economist at Efficient Group, Davi Root, joining us on the line. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. The headlines, Turkish authorities have detained 14 suspected members of the Islamic State group in Ankara, accused of planning an attack on elections this weekend. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has expressed his readiness to support Eritrea and Ethiopia following positive steps of peace between the two neighboring states in the Horn of Africa. And the Libyan Navy has rescued 379 illegal immigrants in two separate operations off the western coastal town of Karabuli. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. South African civic groups, Corruption Watch, Section 27 and the Treatment Action Campaign have released a report by Special Investigating Unit on what they say is widespread corruption and gross financial misconduct, totaling 1.2 billion rand in the Gauteng Province Department of Health. This allegedly happened between 2006 to 2010. Jermaine Gricher reports. Corruption Watch Executive Director David Lewis says among those implicated is Brian Hlongwa, who was Gauteng Health MEC at the time 
and is now the ANC chief whip in the provincial legislature. This is a real textbook case of state capture where both the financial management and procurement management was effectively handed to a private sector company and then the private sector company in collusion with leading officials have looted the department. We are calling for these people to be prosecuted because the problems today in the very fragile Gauteng healthcare system can be traced directly back to the conduct of leading officials who have by and large escaped without any punishment at all. The report, which was handed to then-President Jacob Zuma in March 2017, seven years after it was commissioned, was only released to Section 27 in May this year. Anele Yawa from the Treatment Action Campaign says labor unions and the public must stand together against looting and corruption. We will take people to the legislature of Gauteng and demand answers. If it means we must have five days night vigil outside Brian Shongwa's house, we will do so. So that Brian Shongwa can be able to pay back the money. And after that, Brian Shongwa and all those implicated must face the full might of the law. So we are not going to rest. We are not going to moan, but we are going to mobilize and organize and embark on a mass action that is going to seek to fix the broken public health care system in Gauteng and elsewhere in the country. Section 27's Mark Hayworth says while the organization supports universal health care, the ailing public health care system must first be fixed before a national health insurance can be realized. He says if their estimates are correct, then almost 10% of the health budget is lost to corruption each year. If you were to take that 20 or 30 billion rand and to turn it into doctor's posts or nurses' posts or medicines or ambulances or clinics that have proper infection control procedures and systems, you would see a dramatic transformation almost overnight if that money was put back into health. So corruption isn't the be-all and end-all of the health crisis, but it's a significant plank of it, and it is one of the easiest things to eliminate. Attempts to get comment from Brian Hlongwa have not been successful. I'm Jermaine Kricher in Johannesburg. Now, they are, meanwhile, they are calling uh, for swift action against former health MEC Brian Songwa. That is Corruption Watch, Section 27 and Treatment Action Campaign and uh, other implicated officials in the financial misconduct totaling about 900 million U.S. dollars. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by David Lewis, Executive Director of South African-based Corruption Watch. David Lewis, you must be very happy um, at this point in time after the final release of this report. Well, you know, happy is not exactly how I would describe myself. But, but yes, we're pleased that the report has been released at last. We've been asking querying progress on this report since about 2014, actually. And as soon as we were eventually told that it's been handed over to the uh, President Zuma at the time, we tried to get it out of the office of the President, were unsuccessful, and then a couple of months ago, Pyad filed the Promotion of Access to Information Act request and the presidency uh, handed it over to Section 27. So, yes, we're, we're pleased. Many of these allegations surfaced in media investigations some years ago, actually. Uh, but why so did it take so long, David? Action. Why did well, it, it take so long know, for the presidential uh, government to release it? Well, well, you know, firstly, it took extremely long for the investigation to be concluded. And, uh, you know, I think those questions need to be asked and answered by the SIU. It seems 
incredibly long. I mean, I know that these investigations are, are complex, sometimes key people, or very often times, usually key people don't easily cooperate with the investigations. In fairness to the SIU, it seems that they have not waited until the conclusion of the report to refer some of the uh, alleged perpetrators for prosecution. They seem to have done this earlier, so I think there are questions to be asked of the prosecuting authorities as to why nothing was uh, has been has been done to date. But, uh, you know, I agree with you. The SIU is a very, potentially now, becomes a very important body in combating corruption. It has... It has significant resources and significant powers, and it needs to do its work more expeditiously. But, uh, you know, late though it is, we're determined to follow through and ensure that that those who are, are fingered in the report are, are brought to justice. Now, David, the report contains very intense information around the corruption that has been happening in, in, in the Gauteng's uh, Department of Health. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the analysts mentioned uh, yesterday that uh, some of the issues of uh, the tragedies uh, or cat- uh, catastrophes of life esitimeni wouldn't have happened if such things were not taking place in the Gauteng Health Department. Briefly well, summarize what was found in the report. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, you know, what the report really reveals is a fairly classic example of state capture. Essentially, the department was captured by a private sector entity uh, that in cahoots with the department, with with officials in the department, uh, looted the department. I mean, right to the extent of this private sector firm seconding 20 of its employees to posts in the finance section of the Department of Health, including that of Chief Financial Officer, and then doing business with itself. So, you know, in effect, you had the Chief Financial Officer uh, um, authorizing payments to this firm and sitting on the tender adjudication committee of the, uh, of the, of the department. So this was not just a case of, you know, this contract or that contract being corrupted. This was a case of the whole decision-making structure of the department with respect to procurement and finance being handed over to a private sector firm by uh, the, those in the leadership of the department and then systematically corrupting some really huge tenders, IT tenders, medical equipment tenders. And, uh, you, you know, in the life as in many cases, you know, this is not. This doesn't have anything directly to do with that, obviously. But there again, I mean, there is a suspicion of corruption in the in the life estimony case that yet has to be revealed. But I think that you know practices like this leave a very powerful mark on the functioning of the department. And so I think it's no exaggeration to say that the crisis, current crisis in the in the Gauteng Health Department, has much to do with these kinds of practices. Now, what should the next step be? And uh, now that the findings of the report have been made public, what is expected to happen going forward? Well, I think that there must be prosecutions. There's no doubt that the prima facie evidence is is strong enough and the the evidence that is contained in the report is strong enough to mount a significant range of of, uh, prosecutions. Also, you know the 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 sort of kingpin, the alleged kingpin in the department at the time in in, in the in the MEC's 
the position of, of MEC, was is now the chief whip of the ANC in the Gauteng legislature, and that's wholly inappropriate. I mean, we're calling on the on the party to you know look at that, um, and and frankly to withdraw him from the legislature and to refer this to their the party's integrity commission as well as to the Gauteng government's integrity commissioner, but it's wholly inappropriate to have somebody still occupying high political office with these, uh, you know, very uh, um, well-founded allegations hanging over his head. David, this is definitely a developing story that we're all watching very closely. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was David Lewis, Executive Director of South African-based Corruption Watch. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Today in 2008, Zimbabwe's opposition leader Morgan Tangrai withdrew from a presidential runoff against Robert Mugabe. Today in history, 2008. Cameroon has launched a multi-million dollar emergency humanitarian assistance plan for hundreds of thousands of its citizens whom the government says live in precarious and life-threatening conditions in Cameroon and Nigeria due to the ongoing conflict with armed separatists of Cameroon's Anglophone region seeking to break away from the predominantly French-speaking country. All Cameroonians have been called upon to contribute to the fund. Channel Africa's Moki Kinzaga has more. Cameroon's Prime Minister Philemon Young says the $23 million emergency humanitarian assistance plan was ordered by President Paul Bia after more than 100 Cameroonians have been killed, 84 soldiers and police murdered, and hundreds of thousands of its citizens now live in precarious and life-threatening conditions due to the war with armed separatists fighting for the creation of an English-language state. Philemon Young says the war has internally displaced 74,000 who are facing famine alongside disastrous health conditions and that 21,000 others have fled to Nigeria and should be brought back home. Our emergency humanitarian assistance plan aims at providing emergency humanitarian assistance to affected people, ensuring the socioeconomic reintegration of the affected populations, reconstructing destroyed infrastructure, housing, food and basic needs, health care, education. This action will include assistance and visits to show compassion to Cameroonian refugees in Nigeria. Philemon Young said people behind the scene out of Cameroon instigate armed youths under the influence of drugs to kill, kidnap and rape, adding that so many teenagers have been recruited as child soldiers. He said farming was looming in the English-speaking areas since most farms and cattle ranches had been abandoned and most businesses closed. 
Philemon Young said he was counting on government resources and contributions from Cameroonians and the international community to fund the emergency humanitarian assistance plan. Funding for this emergency humanitarian program will be provided by the state budget, the call for national and international solidarity, and the contribution of our international partners. This is not the first time Cameroon is organizing a humanitarian gesture of this nature. A similar show of solidarity and generosity was recorded in the case of the humanitarian crisis caused by Boko Haram. Reactions have been varied. Many people say it is a good initiative to cater for and bring back thousands who have fled and reconstruct their destroyed towns and villages. But Reverend Father Apollinarius, king of the Catholic Church, who has been providing food aid to displaced populations and calling for an end to the violence, says the government should first of all call for a ceasefire and dialogue with the armed separatists, without which the ongoing violence will still disrupt the plan. The option and the way out is proper and organized dialogue. But I think it should not be done in the manner politicians are talking about it. You cannot have unity and peace without justice. Schools have been closed in the English-speaking northwest and southwest areas of Cameroon since November 2016, when lawyers and teachers called for a strike to stop what they believe is the overuse of the French language. Separatists took over and we're asking for the independence of the English-speaking from the French-speaking regions. Cameroon government reacted with a crackdown, and several dozen leaders of the strike were arrested. Last week, the international human rights group Amnesty International criticized Cameroon for using unnecessary and excessive force, which frequently put civilians caught in a web of the violence in desperate conditions. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zota. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoko. Good morning. The aviation giant Airbus has warned it could be forced to pull out of Britain if the government fails to agree a Brexit deal with the European Union. In a risk assessment analysis, Airbus said no deal scenario would be catastrophic for the company. It also says that the planned transition period after Britain's formal exit is too short. Airbus Chief Operating Officer Tom Williams has called for a swift action from the UK government. I think we've become increasingly frustrated with the lack of clarity. Uh, I think as we go through this uh, summer, over the next weeks, 
we need to get clarity. We're already beginning to press the button on our crisis action. Uh, and clearly the, the, the challenge of this is not a one-off decision. It will be a series of significant decisions that will accumulate as we go over the next couple of months. South Africa has fallen behind its BRICS counterparts in meeting its tax revenue targets. The South African Revenue Service SARS collected 1.2 trillion trillion rands uh, for the year through March 2018, slightly below target. Former Finance Minister Marusi Kikaba, in his uh, February budget speech, forecast a budget shortfall of 4.3% of gross domestic product. Amina Akram reports. Apart from Brazil, the other three BRICS countries had either increased or reached their tax collection targets. Mark Kingon is SARS Acting Commissioner. There were a number of questions I asked specifically, how are the people doing in terms of revenue? And I think my colleague from India shocked me with their growth. I think year on year, the one was 17%. We have not been experiencing the same growth. That report by Amina Akram. Wager talks at South Africa's power utility Eskom are set to resume next Wednesday after the power utility and unions have failed to reach agreement at Woodmead, north of Johannesburg. The NUM, NUMSA and Solidarity presented a consolidated set of demands, including a drop in their wage increase demand from 15 to 9%. Eskom has warned that power generation remains constrained following last week's wage strike and that load shedding is still a strong possibility. NUMSA General Secretary, Irvin Jim. The failure for ESCOM to make sure that they have got an appropriate decision that can negotiate and take decisions on the spot does border on ESCOM bargaining in bad faith. The fundamental issue is wages, but for them to be able to respond concretely, they need a board and apparently they would be able to have a full board on Monday. Bank Event Hook Holdings, now Capricorn Group, has celebrated five years of listing on the Namibian Stock Exchange. According to a statement from the Namibian Group, this listing is seen as a way of affording all stakeholders, including previously disadvantaged Namibians, employees, customers and members of the Namibian public, an opportunity to acquire a Bank Event Hook Holdings shares and participation in the ownership of BWH Group. This indicates growth of 16% per annum over this period. The closing share price over this period also shows an increase of 78%. The International Monetary Fund team is in Accra on a staff visit to ascertain the preparedness of the country's march towards exiting the fund-supported program by the end of the year. The IMF staff would want to carry out their own assessments of the program for Ghana's implementation this year. They would also want to find out how the government has gone in preparing the ground for the announcement and implementation of a proposed new revenue measure, which is highly expected to be announced in the 2018 mid-year budget review. The U.S. dollar trades at 10.22 Botswana Pula. It's at 10.4 in Zambia. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar trades at 3.77 Brazilian real. At 63.67 Russian ruble and at 67.88 Indian rupee. It's at 6.49 Chinese yuan and at 13.63 to the South African rand. It's also trading at uh, 75 pence to the British pound and at 86 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,274 
platinum, $8.72 an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $75.22 a barrel. I'm Tabi Sodohoku. A sports update up next with Figile Nwati. First, in our sports bulletin, it's football news. Brazilian Soccer Federation says Neymar will be available for today's Group E game against Costa Rica. The Brazilian star joined the rest of the squad in training session in Sochi yesterday, just a day after he limped out of practice because of a pain in his right ankle. The session was closed to the media, but the Brazilian Soccer Federation says Neymar participated normally in the team's activity. They had downplayed the seriousness of the injury, saying he was confirmed to play against Costa Rica in St. Petersburg today. Brazil and Switzerland are two points behind group leader Serbia, who beat Costa Rica in the Group E opener. And former FIFA boss Seb Blatter, who is serving a six-year ban from soccer, says that he met Russian President Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin during his trip to the World Cup. Yeah, um, uh, uh, listen, I met, I met uh, the President Putin uh, yesterday evening. Uh, he invited me in, the, in his apartments in, in the Kremlin. It's not the first time I'm there. And um, we, had, uh, we had small talk, that's all, about, uh, about the World Cup and about uh, his pleasure to have the World Cup now here. And um, uh, when you have a look what has happened in the first week, on the field of play, it's good football, it's attractive football, passionate football. It's Blatter says that he was invited by Russia to the World Cup, got his accreditation from Russia, and that after watching the Brazil-Costa Rica match in St. Petersburg today, he will leave the country. No, I am a guest from Russia, so I, I am a fan. I got an accreditation as a fan. Just fan, it was uh, written fan. I am a fan, that's all. First of all, I have to say I enjoy football. Uh, secondly, I like the World Cup. And uh, third, I have uh, the pleasure to have been invited uh, to come for a few days to the World Cup in Russia. And um, this is a very good time for me. And um, with a lot of emotions, um, gives me the impression that time has stopped, that I'm still somewhere in. But unfortunately, I'm not only, I'm not totally out, but I'm somewhere suspended. On to rugby news, former All Blacks coach John Michel says the Springbok series victory over England is good for the country and it's rugby, but the Springboks need to know that they can get better. Yeah, it's really pleasing to see the box uh, win a test series. It's good for the country, it's good for everyone. Um, I'm sure they recognise that they can get better as well. Um, and um, yeah, it doesn't matter whether England was depleted or or what. You know, ultimately, end of the day, it's always been a historically a you know a really tough tough series. Um, uh, yeah, one side was trying to play you know uh, in a different way to the other side, so that was that was quite uh, cool to watch. But going back to the individuals, yeah, no, it was good to see that um, 
you know, some of the guys have found, uh, you know, found their feet at, at test level. The Kenya Rugby Union KRU board has fired Kenya Sevens head coach Innocent Simuyu in the wake of the sponsor blackout saga at the Perry Sevens last month. KRU is said to have instigated proceedings against the team for masking off the Make It Kenya logo from the front of the jerseys at the Perry Sevens. And according to the sources, Simuyu stormed the board's meeting on Wednesday to stand for his players, saying they should not be victimized for the action. That's the Sport News this hour. Channel Africa brings you wall-to-wall coverage of the 2018 FIFA World Cup Finals in Russia. Visit our dedicated World Cup page on www.channelafrica.org.za for in-depth coverage which includes previews, reviews, analysis, breaking news and podcasts of latest interviews. We will also bring you the very latest news from Russia with our Nigerian correspondent Tony Ubani and the BBC's reporters in our daily hourly sports bulletins and on the Africa at Play sports show on Friday, Saturday and Sunday from 5pm to 6pm Central African time. Channel Africa, your home of the 2018 FIFA World Cup Finals. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, IGAD leaders meet to discuss South Sudan peace proposal and Sadak Troika meets to discuss political crisis in the DRC and Lesotho. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine this week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277 277- Six three double zero double three two seven, or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency seven two three zero kilohertz on the forty one meter band to Southern Africa is Ola Media with a song title Science Student.
Get it up. 